This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. Hello, I'm Jiffa Benson. I've just finished as a poet in residence at Whitstable Biennale. And I have been a regular writer and contributor to Poetry Review for nearly a decade now. I'll be hosting this edition of the Poetry Review podcast, which is featuring two poets from the winter 2021 issue, Clementine Iwokolo Burnley and Zakia Carpenter-Hall, who are also alumni of the Obsidian Foundation Retreat for Black Poets. Obsidian Foundation was set up in 2020 by Nick Makoa with the aim of creating a community of Black creative diversity, running week-long retreats for Black poets of African descent. This year's retreat is now open for applications and more information can be found on the Obsidian Foundation website, which is, funnily enough, www.obsidianfoundation.org. Today, I'll be talking to Clementine and Zakia about their poems in the review as well as your experiences with Obsidian. It's great to meet you, Clementine and Zakia. How are you feeling today? Oh, excited. Very happy to be here. Fantastic. So Clementine, we're going to start with you. First, I'm going to introduce you. Clementine Iwokolo Burnley is a mother, public storyteller, and community worker. Her short pieces, essays, and poetry have appeared most recently in the National Flash Fiction Anthology, Baron, Abache Journal, and Ink, Sweat and Tears, and of course, in Poetry Review. Take it away, Clementine, with a poem. <laughs> I know that it involves frogs, but you need to remind me of the title. <laughs> Thanks a lot. It's called How to Eat Frogs. Grandmother's Croak, Welcome. And crows watch from a sagging power line. While I unpack the presents from a bulky suitcase, grandmothers test me with my sisters engaged to marry sons of the soil. I'm their favourite, but grandmothers think my nose ring is for free girls. Grandmothers ask, do your shoulders move one by one when you dance them wire? Did you swallow cloven hoofs or horse meat? So why do you rob our peace? Who fed you eggs before you were two? Who named you swallow? Do you know where your umbilicals buried? What can a kinny thing at your tongue? In the market, between purple pyramids of piled up tomatoes, orange kuluba and bush plums, grandmothers ask me, How many homeboys might any kind careless talk mouth thrown away? The cool palm to my forehead is a blessing before grandmother's squat to the fireplace, muttering. If you're going to cook a white frog, choose a fat one. If you're going to eat snails, don't expect to win a hundred meter dash. I'm asking my grandmothers if we were too much, too soon. Too loud? Too young? We all have a need for sweetness, grandmothers reply. What would you rather be? 
a meal or a snack? My grandmothers ask, if you give the milk away, who's going to buy the cow? Thank you, Clementine. I love, love, love that poem. I really respond to it. I know that your cultural heritage is from Cameroon. My background is Ghanaian. And when I'm speaking Ewe, which is the Ghanaian language I speak with my family, there's a lot of proverbs woven into even everyday conversation. And I get the sense that this is happening here in this poem. Is that right? Is it a very proverbial language? And what language is it that you speak in Cameroon? I was born and brought up in a town on the coast. And there, there is a real mixture of different languages. So one of the primary languages is Douala. But there are other coastal languages. There's Bakweri. In the main, because it's a mixture of people, we speak either Creole or we speak a pigeon. I would be drawing on influences from all of those because there's a cultural mixing there, which makes it a city. People are poetic in their everyday speech. They're metaphorical. They're symbolic. They like to rhyme. So... I like to weave it in and out because it's beautiful, it's comedic, and it's just part. It's part of, of being from there. When you say there's a mix of people, where's the mixing come from? In the foundation of this town, there are Germans, there are three Jamaicans, there are people from Togo. So there is a group of people who came with the British when the First World War started. But even before that, so at the founding of the nation itself, there was a coming together of people from all over the world. I think it's fairly typical of some of the coastal settlements because this place was point of first contact with first European influences enslaving influences and then with colonizing influences and because they're fishermen they range across the whole of the gulf of guinea these people are migratory they are great travelers they were never stopped by borders talking of traveling i get the sense the speaker of this poem has traveled back to a native place from having lived somewhere really far away. I also get the impression that the grandmothers are not necessarily all her relatives, <laughs> that they're just grandmothers in general, you know? And in those parts of West Africa where you can have many people who you might call grandmother, even if you're not related by blood. Yeah, I mean, it refers to a much wider community than is usual now. Although when I speak to my older friends, because I have the habit of cultivating grandmothers anyway, because they're so full of knowledge and humor. I have a 91-year-old friend in the south of Germany. She doesn't speak very differently from these women of my grandmother's generation in Cameroon or in Ghana, where I've also lived. There is a community of women who have outlived many of the conventions that they were brought up under. It's this generation, really, that I um, make reference to across the world. 
I started to think this is also a poem about the gap, a generational gap. And these older women are not quite understanding the ways of this younger woman and questioning her. And that last couplet is a bit devastating and judgmental. Is that right? You're trying to channel this kind of generational gap in terms of the way women conduct themselves? <laughs> I stand in the middle now. I no longer have my own mother, but I have daughters. And so I see myself as sometimes a filter for the generations. My youngest daughter is 15 and a half and wants to know how I grew up, how her grandmother grew up as well. And I'm quoting, I listen very, very carefully. The last couplet is a direct quotation. This person is just giving practical advice. It's her view on the world. She looks at a world which is transactional and she says, make a good deal. I find it devastating because I think it speaks to a reality for many, many people, not just women across the world, who are trading from a fairly um, low base of assets. I think I like the attitude they bring to the romantic myth of relationship. I have to agree because when I go back to Ghana, and I'm so chuffed to hear you lived in Ghana, <laughs> there is a kind of pragmatism to so-called romance that kind of bypasses the whole rose tinted spectacles we have of romance over here. Not to say that it doesn't exist, but there's so much more practicality that is in a way liberating, but also conflicting. And I get that feeling of conflict here. For now, let's go on to Zakia Carpenter Hall. Sakia is a writer, tutor, and critic. Her poems have appeared in Kalalu, Magma, Wild Court, 3AM, and various visual poetry exhibitions. She was a winner of Poetry London's inaugural mentoring scheme. Welcome, Sakia. What poem are you going to read for us today? I'm going to read the gold price. The asking price for everything was a nugget of gold, which no one had. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Jack and the Beanstalk. My mother can turn false golds green, so here's the test. My father, as trusting as Jack, brings home some metal alloy, gleaming like a love that is so pure, it's suspect. And neither my mother nor I believe it could be real, and so we test it. First, for its story, which sounds too much like a fable. Next, for costs, a fourth of his stimulus check. I worry about Jack, who keeps buying gold to bestow his love with everyone around him disbelieving. We say that even the 18-carat gold engraving could be forged. My mother immerses this token of love in rubbing alcohol, dabs it dry, wears it all night. When it survives, she scrapes the exterior, tests its pliancy, 
supplies a magnet to see whether the necklace will be drawn towards it, and watches a wordless video of a ring held suspended in fire for a long time. And my mother seems unsure whether it was the color of the flame, the consistency of the metal, the temperature of the fire, or that the ring did not melt, which was the true indication of its worth. I feel that, in a way, that poem went somewhere unexpected. It's talking about gold, but I get the sense it's really addressing something else completely. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that might be? Or am I way off base here? <laughs> I think that gold is a symbol of something else. You know, it's a symbol of the relationship. It's a symbol of of something that can be exchanged between two people. It's hard to talk about love directly, so sometimes you have to use other symbols, metaphors to describe it and try to get close to it. For me, it was something to explore a kind of relationship dynamic in a more direct way. And how did you land on that Jack and the Beanstalk metaphor running through it? I didn't necessarily start thinking I wanted to write about love. I kind of started out with a story and thinking, okay, how could I tell this story, this quirky little story, family story that happened? It resonated with me like those things can do with poets. And so I thought this needs to be written down, but I don't know what the significance is for me yet. So I got a rough draft down and I thought gold, hmm, it had this element of being not necessarily swindled, but taken advantage of. And so I thought, hmm, this kind of pairs well with the Jack and the Beanstalk story because everybody thinks Jack is so gullible. But it ends up being he finds all this value and there's that connection there. As it developed, though, I knew that I needed to kind of abandon the story, like keep the story, but also abandon it. It was proving a little too restrictive. And so I had to explore beyond what I knew already. I wanted to go beyond that and see what happened. And so what happened is the poem. And how long did it take you? It sounds like it was quite a process. I think the ideas were germinating for a while before I went to paper. Clarissa Pinkola Stees is an author who I read in 2011. She wrote Women Who Run With The Wolves, very popular text. Uh, she's a psychoanalyst, a Jungian trained. So I had had that germinating in my mind and I love psychology. So, you know, that's a big interest for me. But the whole writing of the poem was really quick, maybe a week before I got this version of it. Okay, so a week before you had the story, then you're thinking, no, that's not quite working. Ooh, Jack and the Beanstalk. And a week later, you had the poem. And then, you know, like almost nine, ten years before that, I read Clarissa Pinkolisti's. So it was like all these past influences also affected when I actually sat down to write. I've been thinking about the nature of writing poetry recently. I've had to do a bit of writing under pressure. Pressure I gave myself, but pressure I couldn't get out of. And in a way, that's why I gave myself the pressure, because I knew I couldn't get out of it. I basically had to write some new poems for when I was poet in residence at the Whitstable Biennale, 
it's a way of making myself right. But I was surprised how quickly I wrote some of these poems. One of them called Raft, which was about the invisibility of black women in society. I knew that it was going to appear on a jetty which projected into the sea so that it was revealed and covered according to the tides. But I knew for weeks, so I think it was germinating in the mind and cooking without me realising it. So when it came to the actual writing, I did it in one evening. I'm not advising that, but I am saying that the more you write poetry, the quicker it can come. I don't know if you, either of you find that to be true. I do, especially when you set yourself a parameter. And what about you, Clementine? I do as well. And I think that the proving ground for this was the week-long retreat at Obsidian. This was the both the veil of tears and the, the seasoning, I think, into this way of thinking. It's never left me. The more I write, the more appears. And then it becomes almost like a martial art practice. Is it can become a, a, just a way of living. I suppose the more you do it, the more it opens pathways so that when you need to reach for these things in your mind, they're more readily available. But I'm glad you brought up Obsidian Foundation because I'd like to talk about that and about your experiences of this retreat. First of all, how did the retreat treat you? <laughs> I mean, you talked about it being a veil of tears. Can you elaborate, please? <laughs> you know, sometimes if you're going to work a material like metal or wood, it has to pass through a preliminary process of testing for its functionality, for its endurance, to bring out the qualities. Because Obsidian was an online retreat. Getting up every day and spending that day with a randomly selected group of black poets. And I don't mean that the selection of these poets was random. It was very careful. But then we were put into cohorts. And so I ended up with a series of teachers in master classes, but we then had to produce in our cohort Zaki and I happened to be in the same cohort. I don't think I knew anybody in my cohort when I switched my computer on on Monday. And by Friday, we had bonded. And on Wednesday, at least on my part, <laughs> there was some distress. <laughs> because we were writing until two or three in the morning. And I just didn't think it was possible to come up with an idea which could be read out loud the next morning. We had deadlines every morning. We had to have our writing in a certain online folder by 10 a.m. every day. Most of us didn't think that was possible. Everybody did it. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like this positive peer pressure situation. We just knew that everybody was going to be anticipating our work, not just the people in our cohorts, but also the tutors that we were going to be working with. So we worked with a different tutor each day. Each tutor was going to expect our work to be there by 10 a.m. We workshopped every day. 
Some people have called it boot camp, writer's boot camp. You really worked that muscle that week and we got to also fall in love with each other's work. I mean, I don't know about you, Clementine, but I didn't know any of the writers on my cohort. I didn't know a lot of the other writers who were joining us. So it was just an extra special treat to be able to encounter their work even in this early stage like there's so much beauty in it even though we were staying up late to get this working on time you could tell people have put in the work before going to obsidian coming up with some really beautiful poems there was just a lot of unexpected beauty in that whole process that fed us to be able to do the writing as well because i think you need a lot of fuel in order to be able to write like that and produce on that kind of regimen, but we were all able to do it <laughs> successfully. And I think some people really just flew after that. Like they just needed that encouragement and just took off in their careers. It sounds quite incredible. I like to call it a greenhouse effect where you're sort of fed and watered and suddenly you go and just blew extra quickly. There's a suddenly for both of you, a matrilineal theme going on. What I'm more curious about is because I know that Clementine, your family background is Cameroonian and Zakia, your family background is African-American. To my mind, American in general, diction and poetry is very different from a British diction in poetry. And obviously a West African diction is different again. And I wondered if you both noticed these differences. Is it something you've thought about at all? Of course, I hear the differences, but I would say before Obsidian, it was not something that I had done with any feeling that I was entitled to do that that the diction in which I had grown up was as beautiful and as welcome as any other diction because I had grown up with Chaucerian English, with Shakespearean English, and then being introduced to a range of voices, but um, not my own. It was the first time when I was writing with a community of peers and actually being specifically encouraged to excavate influences which until then had simply been marginal to a literary audience. So for me, it was really a profound discovery that I could communicate naturally and just bring in all the influences on my creativity. That's quite something that you felt that you you didn't have permission to write in what could be described as your true voice or what could be described as a voice that had sloughed off all those influences and then thought, actually, this is fine. I mean, when I look at your poem, How to Eat Frogs, the things I love are when you dance the imbawa or kene kene. I love those little touches coming in. And I think it also means that your voice is distinctive. It stands out from this British diction 
I'm talking about that can be very frustrating because a lot of people write in the same way with the same sort of tone. And Zakia, what about you? Part of my approach to diction and to language is to write in the way that feels most natural to me, however the poem comes. And then as I'm starting to shape the poem, I'm trying to use the diction to hone in on feelings, use my word choice to excavate the subject matter, but also to evoke different kinds of feelings in the reader. I pull from everything, everything that I have experienced, all the you know different kinds of words and language choices. And you don't necessarily see it so much in the gold price, but the other poems that I've written that you can kind of see the different dictions inside the poem. What really brought my attention to vernacular was when I was teaching a class, because I, I taught a class at Royal Holloway, 11-week course on vernacular literature, reading Kai Miller's work, reading Denise Smith's Homie, and teaching the class about you have a vernacular English that you speak and trying to get them to identify that even the students who grew up in England, yes, you have a vernacular, yes, there are different regions of English and the way it's spoken depending on where you live and you grew, where you grew up. Everybody actually has access to that, but not everybody is aware that they have access to different vernaculars and ways of speaking. And I think that just enhances a poem. It gives it layers, it gives it texture. You get a sense of place with vernacular, especially when people are conscious of using it in that way. I remember somebody talking about having an idiolect, you know, having your own kind of vocabulary and vernacular as opposed to a dialect or a, you know, so I'm really fascinated by how you stand out as a poet. I think we should hear more poems from you. Let's start with Zakir this time around. And what poem are you going to read for us? I'm going to read, she found God in herself and she loved her fiercely. My mother said that at five, I went to church with a school friend and saw a large image of a white man on the wall. I couldn't concentrate on the sermon, my favorite part. That Jesus's whiteness was so loud, throwing everything out of focus, even God. My mother doesn't say black people should worship blackness but white nativity figures displayed in a black church incites her to go looking for statuettes with skin the color of coffee and hair like lamb's wool for children to see during praise and worship. This is her answer to the doll tests, make the church and home sanctuaries for blackness. Just so she could learn to cut the glass, to make the frame, to double mat her 24 by 36 inch poster, to display the black Madonna and child in our living room above the sofa, my mother took a framing job at Michael's. In one of her posters, a man stands guard outside a temple, his dark skin prominent against marble pillars. He's so casual in his protective stance that he leans, that he looks like a princely warrior, entirely at ease with himself. When my brother was four, he thought our uncle was Jesus, confused by our uncle, the pastor's use of I. My brother would say, remember when Jesus said, and for a few moments, my mom thought her son was hearing the son of God until he began to recount where Jesus had stood 
in the same place as the pastor, speaking with the same voice. Sudanese frankincense and Tunisian myrrh, oils that, in a similar form, the wise men gave Jesus, were exchanged in my childhood among women, as if associating ourselves with rare and beautiful things, we could relearn to see ourselves as rare and beautiful. I allow my skin to absorb my mother's fragrances and musks. High notes like birch wood, bass notes of resin. There's that matrilineal thing I was talking about coming through loud and strong here. Absolutely love it. And also I'm beginning to sense that your poems have this strong narrative drive. You know, I was reading along to that poem as you read and there's lovely long lines. There's a real storytelling push. You know, that word storytelling made me remember there was a question I wanted to ask you, Clementine, about public storyteller. You know, that's one of the descriptions in your bio. What is a public storyteller exactly? I think I was trying to bring something back into our culture, the way that we understand the world, by bringing back what was a profession and one of the central professions since ancient times, the bard, sometimes the court jester, this figure who was expected to perform this narrative. It's a central function anyway, in a culture that has sort of fragmented into almost each person having their personal platform in a marketplace of ideas and trying to win an audience is the idea of somebody who speaks to the whole community, but on behalf of the whole community as well. I started off as a linguist, and there's the idea in linguistics of a surface structure, which shows up in the things we say, but that surface structure is built on a deep structure. And I think that's where public storytelling comes from, is it tries to fill in all the gaps and deletions at the surface and bring through something that's deeper than the individual personal broadcasting. Zakia, do you get a sense of what Clementine's saying in the way you right because i come back to it i really get that sense of a narrative thrust in your poems i've read so far yes and one of the things i didn't say about the gold price is that there are layers to it seems like a very simple poem but the the meanings have so many different layers and so on one level you can say it's about the relationship between the two people in the in the poem, but on another layer, it could be about creativity and how we accept gifts and should we take something into our lives that we don't think is valuable or that we don't know to be valuable. There's so many kind of cultural traditions around gift giving. And also we have to talk about the woman's agency. Is she gonna accept this gift? She wants to know that it's real. And it's almost like she wants to know if the love is real, she wants to know if the gesture is real. And so there's so many different implications for that as well. And we don't get stories like that. We don't get stories where the woman <laughs> so much is the one who is setting the tone for how the relationship goes, actively choosing. Usually that's the man's role. I wanted to play with that. Yeah, I definitely got that sense. And I loved the fact that <laughs> 
that she did all kinds of testing. Clementine, let's go on to your second poem. What have you got for us? I think I'm going to read Swiss Lace Front Wig. And then there was my aunt's small life upturned by a stroke. And there was the hospital gown open at the back. The limp went away, but she stayed cramped into herself. And then there was the wig. It arrived by parcel post. America wonder. No bright butterfly, more velvet moths, dark drape, shaped into an asymmetrical bob. Healing. Sure as St. Bernadette. Osango Wamboa, interceding in the form of a human hairpiece. She only removed when she swam. And there was her sachet returned. When she slept, it rested on a wooden mannequin head while lovers went and came. Her easy lope remained unchanged by time divorce, or death. The power of a wig, eh? (laughs) You know, especially with black women, people are given a hard time if they do wear wigs or if they do have extensions or unduly praised if they have natural hair and everything. In places like Ghana and West Africa, it's like one minute they have their natural hair, the next minute it's down to here. And it's all good. I say, it's their hair. They bought it. It's theirs. But, you know, there is such judgment there. And I love to see this poem where a wig gives this woman empowerment. Is that what you were going Um, for? When I write, I like to be very, very specific. And so this is a small thing, as you say. But place it in context. And it's a life. And I like the idea of people choosing what satisfies them, what makes them feel empowered, in charge. I watch these women. I watch them treat wigs like hats. I watch them take them off in public in a culture where image is curated as carefully as I I don't even know what to compare it to but you can have an image disaster because a hair is out of place and so I like to see somebody in control and this persona has life by the scruff of the neck and she's not letting go I love it. I love it. I love it so much. Ladies, I feel like we've only just started scratching the surface here. But unfortunately, we have to wrap things up. It's been wonderful talking to you and getting to know at least these couple of poems a little bit more intimately. Thank you so much for having us. And thanks for the conversation, you too. It was really inspiring. I look forward to more in the near future. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. 
To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.